Welcome to Two Psychologists, Four Beers. I'm Yoel Enbar. With me here is my friend and co-host, Alexa Tollett. Alexa, how's it going? Uh, it's going well, Yoel. How are you? I'm really excited to be day drinking today. It is <laughs> noon my time, right? It's 11 yours. Yeah, and I, yeah, I'm going to, I said that I was ready to drink at noon, um, and I'm going to stick to that. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, yeah, and the the reason that we're doing this earlier than usual is that we have a German guest joining us. And so in order to make the time zones work out, uh, we're recording at around lunchtime around uh, and around evening hers. Uh, so we have joining us today Julia Rohrer. She's a personality psychologist. Uh, she studies things including birth order effects, uh, age changes in personality, uh, the correlates and determinants of subjective well-being. Um, and she's also interested in methods, which is uh, really the reason that we wanted to have her on to chat with us. Uh, so she's interested in stuff including the causal inferences from observational data and data analytic flexibility. She's right now a postdoc at the Department of Psychology, University of Leipzig, and she also blogs at the 100% CI, which you can find at the 100, that's 100 numerals, dot CI. Uh, so Julia, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So uh, we're very excited to have you join us. Uh, traditionally, what we do first is we talk about um, what we're drinking. So Alexa, do you want to go first? Yeah. So I mean, I got you all excited, you all, because I said that I had, was committed to um, drinking at noon. For me, it's 11.14 a.m. and I'm teaching after this. So I'm going to have one drink starting at noon. So right now I'm, I'm sticking to tea. I see. Can I advance the possibly controversial proposition that being a little buzzed is going to make your teaching better? Oh, I've definitely considered this before. And in fact, I think I've actually used that strategy before conference talks. Um, <laughs> and I don't remember being disproven, but um, yeah. I think there's a lot of legs to it. There's like a Dunning-Kruger ex extension there. Uh, wait, how's it <laughs> like, you're Drunker actually terrible, but you don't notice. tell that they're doing a terrible yeah. job. <laughs> yeah, no, I buy that. I buy that. Uh, Julia, what about you? So, um, I got myself an UNN, alcoholfreies Schankbier. So this is an IPA, but it's like low or no alcohol. And I have no idea what this is going to be like. So it's called UNN and that is über normal null. So that is just like meters above sea level. And I, I have no idea what to expect from this. My my husband bought like a collection of alcohol-free craft beer, and I'm quite curious about this one. Wow. I'm excited you're going to embark on this adventure with us. So um, I got myself a can um, of... Uh, this brewery that we've that I've drank beers from before, uh, L'Espace Public, uh, and it's a Monty Special Bitter. I'm also probably just going to drink one beer because it is noon and I do have to work later. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm excited to try this. I've never tried it. It has pigeons on it, and one pigeon is wearing a little crown, so that seems That's cool. That's cute. Oh, very nice. All right, let's crack them open. Prost. Mm. Prost. Cheers. <laughs> Yum. Cheers. Mm. Well, mine's bitter, as advertised. Julia, how's yours? It's pretty good, actually. It does taste like an IPA. Like, it got all the hoppiness and the bitterness. So it's nice. Like, sometimes they're a bit flat if they don't contain any alcohol, but this one is actually good. Would you be able to tell it apart from an alcoholic beer in a blind Yes, definitely, yeah. <laughs> hey, Alexa, in your um, dry January, which I take it you're like, didn't really do that all the way to the end, but... <laughs> But when you were doing it, did you drink any non-alcoholic beers? Uh, um, I have uh, 
I didn't do non-alcoholic beers during January, um, but I have friends who like have a, a regular stock of non-alcoholic beers. So I've tried a few different ones now, and one I actually accidentally had on this show. Um, oh yeah, that's right. I, and I, I actually right. like. I would have never thought that there was like an appeal to um, drinking a non-alcoholic beer, but I actually like. I wouldn't say that it's for the taste. It's for something like more disturbing than that, like. Uh, <laughs> like a sense that you're like having a fun drink without the side effects of alcohol. Yeah. Like maybe like almost a placebo beer. Uh huh. Yeah, exactly. So it's actually, it's a, it's a big thing here. So um, I participated like in a, in a marathon, like half marathon in Bavaria and they had alcohol free wheat beer at the finish line and everybody was like gulping it down. So it's a big thing here for sports. Oh, that makes so much sense. <laughs> Yeah, and it's really nice and refreshing. Um, so, yeah, it, it's healthy, I guess. Is it unwise to drink beer after you run a marathon? I think after, like, I, I only did, like, the half marathons, and I think that shouldn't be an issue. <laughs> Assuming some level of fitness, I probably wouldn't drink one after a full one. <laughs> Julia's like, yeah, if you just go for a little short jog, then it's fine. Yeah, no problem, right? <laughs> okay, uh, we have a ton of stuff we want to talk to you about. Uh, so... As I kind of said in the intro, your substantive research is in in personality psych, and that's where your training is. But really, for people kind of outside your specific area, um, I would say that you're probably best known for your methods work. So you've published uh, quite a few things uh, about methodological issues, and you also blog about methodological issues a lot. So first of all, I'm just curious how you got into that, right? Was it something when you started grad school, you were like, yeah, I really, I'm interested in methods, and that's something I want to pursue? Or is it that you kind of got interested in that um, almost accidentally as as you were working on your PhD? So that was definitely all a big accident. Um, so I started working in my current lab, which is personality psychology, like during the second year of my undergraduate degree. So it was like nine years ago. And um, during my master's studies, I like randomly attended a workshop by um, a German sociologist called Felix Elvert, um, who's um, at the University of Wisconsin Medicine. And he just gave like an introduction to directed acyclic graphs for causal inference. And I was like, hey, that's like really cool. I should like learn more about that. And he's like, yeah, you should learn more about it. And so I read up on it. It all made a lot of sense. So I wrote some like stupid blog posts about that. And so <laughs> that led to me getting asked to write a primer on causal inference. And that's why I wrote that like AMPPS paper. And then people really liked it. And um, I noticed that I generally enjoy writing about methods. I'm not a methods person by training. I enjoy writing about uh, methods. And I do feel that it makes a genuine difference um, for others who are trying to catch up with recent developments. Yeah, so I was also sort of curious about how you end up do, ended up being um, more interested in methodology. And I feel like uh, for people who are new to psychology, often the methods part is the more intimidating part, or it's not always like why, why people get into psychology, right? Um, so yeah, I was sort of curious, like when I, you said you are teaching, right? Um, when you encounter students who think methods are boring or unimportant or um, intimidating? What do you tell them? So actually, I don't encounter many of these students. I, I think in particular, our undergraduates, they are like really smart. And um, it has to do with how we select students in Germany and so on. But most of them are really into methods in particular, if you put in the um, effort to explain things well. 
But yeah, I think if people don't enjoy method, it has methods, it has a lot to do with the way they are being taught. Like things are just sort of arbitrary and they don't make much sense. And so I'm really trying to stress like the part, like how do things make sense? Why are we applying these statistical methods? What can they tell us on which assumptions and so on? And I think if you frame it that way, most psychologists or most psychology students are actually interested in methods. It's just a matter of framing, I think. Yeah, I'm curious, Alexa, for you guys um, at uh, U of A, like how the undergraduate major choice works. Because um, at U of T, you know, we, I, I feel in our kind of requirements, we sort of signal to them that it's not a particularly technical um, topic. So we don't require a lot of like math as an entry requirement, for example. And so I think we attract the people who think of themselves as more like verbal people who are into, you know, narrative explanations and not the sort of people who would get excited about um, directed acyclic graphs, right? Um, And I include myself in that. Um, That's definitely kind of what drew me to psychology is the powerful stories, not the methods nerdery. And I wonder what you can do to like change the selection a bit to, to emphasize that. Yeah, that's sort of interesting. So I'm I'm not exactly sure how UA would like market a degree. I guess I know a little bit about that because sometimes I'll meet with prospective undergraduate students who are interested in doing a degree in psychology, um, but I'm not sure how they're chosen. And and the way that I present the program to them is I, I don't think there's like a particular emphasis on you know how you're going to you know get a rigorous education in in research methods or something like that. You know I tell them that that's part of it and um, that there's lots of other other stuff involved as well. So I would be sort of like curious, um, Julia, how you think that um, your institution sort of finds these people. But also I think there is room for, um, especially if a lot of students in in an undergraduate psychology program are not planning on going to grad school or doing research, um, I think there's like lots of room for people who want to do psychology as a major but don't have any particular need to become research methods experts. So so I'm not necessarily saying like I, I think that UA should emphasize research methods more. So um, in Germany, um, there's a thing. So a lot of people want to study psychology, like many, many more people than um, could actually get into psychology programs. And so what we are mostly doing um, up until now is we select by um, their final high school grades. So there's like, um, it's a centralized thing, a thing in Germany called Abitur. And essentially like the best possible uh, grade you can get is like a 1.0. And essentially to get into psychology right now, I think you need a 1.0 or 1.1. So you need to have been like a consistently good student in high school. And that automatically gives you all the people um, that had like the best possible marks in math and so on. I don't know whether that's a good thing or Mm -hmm. a bad thing. It's just because there are so many people who want to get in and we need some easy way to select them across universities and that's what currently is what's currently happening and i think that also means that actually germans are confronted with a very different um student crowd than i think people in north america and so on huh interesting yeah i also wouldn't necessarily guess that i mean obviously i would assume there's some sort of correlation between high school grades and maybe interested in in methods and stats, but not like a perfect correlation. So presumably some people are getting really high grades in high school because they're like excellent writers or um, various other skills you could have besides quantitative skills. But you find that that in general, it means that that people sort of like catch on to 
to research methods quickly? It, it actually, it, it sort of depends on which part of the Germany they come from. But for example, I graduated in Baden-Württemberg and there you have to take like math up to the highest level and mm -hmm. uh, write like a central examination and that in the very end. So it's automatically selected on a certain level of math skill and that varies a bit. Um, but yeah, in general, I think we're just like like selecting like the very, very best students and they are just much more likely to be good at all these things as well. So we are kind of like in a very privileged position, I'd say, as um, lecturers and professors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I do feel like there's like an increasing divergence between the kinds of like skills that you need to go further in psychology and what people assume about that before they're in the field. Um, so like, I think now, um, especially if you're interested in going on into grad school and things like that, the like quantitative and computer skills that you, um, that you need, I think are not intuitive to, to, to an outsider who would be wondering, you know, like what, what skills you need in a psychology graduate program. So in Germany, we actually just like kind of restructured the whole system because in Germany, if you want to become a psychotherapist, you do have to have a master's degree. And now they changed the requirements a bit. So now it's actually like a clinical master's degree. Um, so um, all the stats parts and so on can be, can be de-emphasized a bit and more practical parts and so on. But I, I, I still think the, the new master's degree is still quite heavy on methods. So like one of the new requirements is that they are taught advanced measurement methods like um, item response theory. And I'm not sure whether that makes a lot of sense if you have people who want to become psychotherapists. But uh, that is what it currently looks like. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I think of that as being really extreme because, I, you know, we weren't taught IRT. I think most mm -hmm. research psychologists, like, are not taught item response theory. I think you would get that if you're doing, like, a quantitative methods program or, or maybe a school of education, um, they would care about that more. But you're, like, regular, you know, experimental social or personality program i don't think that would be standard at all that's mm -hmm. like an above and beyond course and here it's like if you if you want to listen to people's problems you better know irt you know it's wild so i think this is a good bridge actually to um so i'm curious from your kind of position as somebody who started out um as a personality psychologist who's done like i guess a lot of just independent learning about methods what are the deficiencies that you see like what are what are the most important things that you think that mainstream social and personality psych is getting wrong methodologically? Uh, so first of all, I, I don't know whether it makes sense to combine social and personality psych for that question, right? Because I don't think I can speak that much to the problems in social psych, at least in Germany. It is like a completely distinct um, field of research. Um, but when I look at my own field of research, which is a particular flavor of personality research, and if I had to like list um, like top issues, so I think the one thing that really annoys me personally, which is why I would list it first, is like unclear research questions. So in personality psych, you will see a lot of like fancy statistical modeling, longitudinal data, whatever, but it's often really unclear what exactly is supposed to be answered with all that fancy data. And then sometimes they do have a clear research question, but it's kind of unclear how the data are supposed to speak to those questions and the analyses. And um, of course, this is a bit like using this as a first point is a bit of cheating because it does subsume a lot of the debates that are currently going on, right? So theory crisis, measurement crisis, generalizability crisis, it all is about um, like, what questions are we asking and are our data actually capable of answering them? 
And so that would be my, my top point, I guess, and the top priority to work on. And um, then I think you wanted three issues. So the second one would be, again, like a bit of cheating because it's a subset of the previous issue. But I would say, yeah, it's probably bad causal inference, at least in personality psychology. And the third one, I would mm. say, is actually just like the classic variance force positives. So we do have a lot of like huge studies and so on. But then you see that people slice and dice the data and so on. You still get those like kind of suspicious looking p-values, just barely significant, and that variability across studies. I actually do think it's, so it's not a problem in all of personality psychology, but there are like um, subfields where it really does look like we still, we are still struggling with like data flexibility and so on. So I would also list that. I wouldn't ignore that as an issue. Yeah. So you would put p-hacking on the list, but in last place, I guess, because I asked you to rank them in terms of priority. So you, you think these other things are actually, at least in personality psych, more important? Yeah. And I think that's only because um, in many cases, the data for us is just really, really cheap, right? And so um, in particular, because I'm using a lot of existing data sets and there's like, well, 10,000 participants, I'm I'm not going to be able to like p-hack that um, very much, maybe a little bit. Um, but the bias is just a much bigger problem than the variance across samples. Yeah. So so on this first question of uh, unclear research question, um, you've, you've written a recent blog post about this, which we'll, um, we'll put the link to that in the show notes, um, where basically you argue for something called a structured abstract. And honestly, you know, maybe I'd heard the words structured abstract before – I read your blog post, but not much more than that. Alexa, I don't know whether you were any more familiar with this concept. If I'd heard the words, I'd forgotten them. <laughs> so, yeah, can you explain what is a structured abstract? What is it good for? Who's using it now? And why should psychologists consider writing one? I was involved in a project um, just coding the language in health studies. And so this is something that is super common in medicine. So if you just go on PubMed and look at any study, it will probably have a structured um, abstract. And I actually pulled one up to have an example. So um, it would look um, something like this. So you have a, a study, HDL, cholesterol as a residual risk factor for whatever. And then the abstract has multiple sections. So objective to evaluate whether low HDL cholesterol levels are a risk factor and so on. Research design and methods. We performed a prospective cohort study of 1,829 patients and so on. Results, um, you get all the results and then you get a conclusion. And so it's just a really structured um, format and that is um, the standard you get there. And we were coding how researchers described the association between the variables of interest. And it was super easy for these structured abstracts because you have to write down what you are trying to do, right? And so in the mix of studies that I had to code, there were two. I think one was written by economists and the other one by psychologists. And they were just a mess to code, right? They were like, oh, the impact of the early environment, neighborhood, whatever, on this and that and so on. And that was like the first time I realized, okay, like just providing the information in a structured way actually makes a lot of sense because our studies are structured in a certain way and spelling that out explicitly makes a huge difference for readers. I'm curious, Julia. So, um, okay, so if I could sort of attempt to um, paraphrase what you listed as the, the biggest problem in personality psychology, and maybe this is also true of social psychology, it certainly seemed like it um, when you were describing it. So if that problem is something like people don't have clear research questions and they also don't clearly tie their research questions to their data and how it's analyzed, um, I'm wondering, like, where do you think that 
problem comes from? And I ask that question because maybe the answer is relevant to um, to how much of it will be solved with structured abstracts. And I think a lot will could be solved with structured abstracts in terms of sort of like making making things more transparent. Um, but yeah, I'll just I guess I'll just leave it at that. So first of all, I don't think that structured abstracts, um, in particular in this way that is already um, established in uh, the medical sciences and so on, wouldn't fix the problem. Because actually, in that coding project, there were a lot of epidemiologists there like, oh, these studies are such a mess, it's impossible to tell what they were trying to do. No, so they're like, actually, this looks much better than what I get to see as a reviewer, right? It's much clearer. And so I, d I don't think um, like this format would be sufficient, which is why I suggest like additional um, sections for the abstract. Um, but I do think in psychology, we just have like a really strong culture of storytelling, right, of using like just verbal explanations and so on. And actually, I personally, I enjoy that. Um, I also think that it's something that works in, in favor of my own work because it makes it easier for me to publish papers because I'm good at the storytelling part. And uh, so it's kind of like asking for structured abstract would be handicapping myself <laughs> in that respect. Um, but I do think we just have that... Um, um, culture and it really shines through when people are talking about certain um, famous social psychologists and they will be like yeah but he's such a great writer right like the stories he tells it's so like captivating and I just think we do have that strong culture people really value that and I think it's also like kind of satisfying as like I read a lot of pop science book and some books and sometimes it's really just satisfying to have that nice narrative and so on but then when you take like a closer look, it's so easy to obscure and hide things with, with, with language and just express yourself like really vaguely, but in a manner that it still feels satisfying. It's still a good explanation. It just doesn't really explain anything when you think about it for a bit longer. So I guess I have a further question then, which is like, so these stories are appealing to people, I think. I'm, I mean, I certainly, uh, I certainly find the storytelling aspect appealing and I like reading papers that are well written and um yeah the the narrative component is compelling to me um but do you think it's like a matter of sort of strengthening the connection between i guess those narratives and the data or do you think that the narratives that we find interesting there's like some inherent limitation in actually collecting those to the kinds of data we collect so personally and that's also what I'm trying to do my own writing is just like tightening the narrative so that it's still satisfying to read but really maps onto what I'm doing and really communicates all the uncertainty but I feel like this is like really really hard mm -hmm. if you have a complex study you want to report everything in a transparent manner and you still want to have a nice narrative that takes into account that all the previous studies have huge issues so you can't just list them as given facts and so on I think that is super challenging and I think if we demand or keep demanding that it's going to just get really really hard for many people because after all we're not writers right like we're supposed to do science and that is like data analysis as well and um, if we demand so many uh, skills then um, we might run into other issues so I'd prefer to um, let go of some of the narrative parts so I'm not opposed to narratives I, I really like good narratives um, but if I had to choose between like a tight link between the theory and the analyses and so on versus very nice um, verbose writing, then I definitely um, prefer the tight link between the theory and the data and so on. So you would bring the the narrative in line with the, the data and like constrain them by the data? Yes, yes, if that's possible. Right. And I think there are uh -huh. people who argue in favor of letting go of the whole narrative aspect. 
I don't know whether I would enjoy <laughs> reading those papers, and the, mm -hmm. my, they might write and like run into marketing issues. If nobody reads them, they won't have won't, won't make any difference. But mm -hmm. I'm open to the possibility that we could change it. I'm also wondering about the other direction, which is, I guess, like if if the problem is the connection between narrative and data, um, is there is there not enough room for people just to tell narratives with no data. But I think there's lots of room for that. It's just like not what we call psychology, I guess. Yeah. And I often feel like so. Um, so, of course, qualitative research is not just telling stories without data. It, it still contains data and so on. But I do feel like, for example, the type of re research just affords more freedom. But I, I think we are so eager to stress that we are like super empirical, quantitative mm -hmm. and so on. So there needs to be like a nice illustration with data. And so we can't let go on of of, uh, of that. And I think that's a bit sad. I would like to see just like pure theory without reference to shoddy studies and so on. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's a question that I've asked some of my undergraduate students. I like ask them, would you rather listen to like a TED talk where somebody is just like telling you their intuitions or something where like they're telling you completely about data? Um, and they always want to hear about data, but I think they're being naive. And that's at the beginning or when they are undergraduates. <laughs> you might ask again in grad school or when they are all like disillusioned about the research process. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So here's just a practical question about how this would look for psychology. The study that you gave the example from seems like they did one study. And then it's very clear to say, okay, well, what was the hypothesis? What exactly did we do? What was the endpoint? But a typical JPSB is like seven studies, right? Study one demonstrates the effect, and then there's some moderation, some mediation. Uh, maybe you do it in an incentivized way. So how do you cram all of that into a single structured abstract? So first of all, I'm not sure whether it's a good idea to have seven studies in a single paper, in particular if it's seven studies trying to address diff different theoretical estimates, because I think getting one estimate right is really, really hard. Um, but um, if you had that, I, I guess it would simply mean listing all these things, right? Because you need to be transparent about the objective of every single study. Maybe you would notice that it's all a bit ridiculous because you're trying to do so much in a single paper. And I wouldn't expect any study to do that well because it seems impossible. Um, but yeah, I guess you would just list it actually. Or maybe write um, like separate structured abstracts for each single study. In this blog post, um, you use some terms that I wasn't super familiar with. So in particular, you talk about estimands. Uh, a lot, uh, which is a word that you just uh, you just use now. I wonder whether you can, for our listeners who are probably equally not as familiar with with that terminology, can you just explain what that means? Yeah, so maybe I should say. So um, in this blog post, I suggest that um, articles should contain a section that is the theoretical estimate and the identification strategy. And so I'm not aware of any journal currently doing this because this goes way beyond just like um, study objective. This is much more um, systematic. So um, the theoretical estimate um, is a concept that um, I learned quite recently from a very, very nice paper um, by uh, Lundberg et al. So I'm actually just going to look for the right section. Um, so we advocate that authors state the central quantity of each analysis, the theoretical estimate in precise terms that exist outside of any statistical model. So the theoretical estimate is the thing that your analysis is trying to get at. And 
in principle, it exists outside of statistical models. So it can't be like the regression coefficient, or it shouldn't even just be the correlation. It needs to correspond to something that exists outside, outside of models. And so an estimate could, for example, just be, if you're just interested in description, it could be something like, okay, I'm interested in self-reported life satisfaction across a certain population, for example, in Germany. So your estimate would just be like self-reported life satisfaction, and then you average it across the population of interest, and that is what your analysis is trying to get at. But of course, normally we are more interested in, for example, causal effects, and those would be defined in terms of potential outcomes. So contrast, um, like your outcome if A had happened in contrast to your outcome if B had happened. And you have that contrast, and that is the individual level causal effect. And of course, you can actually never quite estimate that. So you would average it across a population. And then you have something that you can estimate very well with an experiment if that's possible in that particular case. And so um, I think that notion of a theoretical estimate is just super valuable because in psychology, I, I often feel like we are so focused on stats. We are always like, so this coefficient and that coefficient. And actually, we don't quite consider that the coefficients are only interesting because they reflect something else in the world, like some other quantity that is of interest to us. And I think the theoretical estimate just makes it very precise. So there's that thing we're interested in on the one hand, and then there's our statistical estimate on the other hand. And those needn't correspond, and we can spell out when they would correspond and when they wouldn't. So you mentioned life satisfaction. So that's a, a measure where you might say, well, we, we care about you know, the scores per se, maybe. Um, but there's many scales that you give people where it's not the score per se, it's the kind of the underlying mysterious thing that those scores correspond to, right? So how does that complicate this story? Is the estimate the score on the scale? Is it the underlying thing that the scale is supposed to tap? How do you talk about that? So, I mean, that would, of course, be um, up to you. And maybe that's a, like a big weakness also of the causal inference literature, that they often just treat the variables as given. And that is bewildering to um, many psychologists on the same on the, on the, on the, at the same time, it's kind of consistent, right? You just say, okay, we're just interested on life satisfaction as reported, and that's just some variable. But um, then, of course, you could, um, and so that is like sort of something I suggest in that blog post, you could fold that into the theoretical estimate, right? So I say, I'm actually not interested in people's observed life satisfaction as the scores they gave on like the, the scale, but I actually want to know their latent life satisfaction. And then you automatically have to add more identifying assumptions. So you have to assume something like latent life satisfaction exists and it relates to our observed variables in the following way. And then it could be like a reflective measurement model and so on. And so these would all be um, additional assumptions you have to make to ensure that your analysis can get at the theoretical estimate of interest. And of course, you could say, oh, no, I, I don't believe actually in these measurement assumptions. And I actually believe many people in psychology don't. So then you really have to wonder, okay, well, what am I trying to do here? Well, maybe I just want to talk about measured life satisfaction. And uh, yeah, so I think um, I really don't know how people would um, handle that. If you really press them to say, do you really believe in this latent variable model? Yes, no. I think people would probably say no, but then you have to wonder why they keep using them. Yeah, so maybe this is a good point um, at which to talk about uh, a paper of mine. And Julia, this was your suggestion um, that we talk about. Actually, the first paper that I ever published is it? It's your greatest hit. It's a, it's a, it's also my most highly cited. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I basically it's been a long decline ever since my first paper. Pretty much. So anyway, I I. 
uh, we'll read the abstract, and then maybe we can use this as a, a way to like talk about some of these issues, and maybe you can elicit from me because you know, I barely know what a latent variable model is, right? So maybe you can ask me some like very simple questions, and we can decide whether I believe in it or not. Uh, does that sound good? Let's go. Sweet. All right. Um, so this paper, uh, this is Inbar and Pizarro, uh, 2008, Conservatives Are More Easily Disgusted Than Liberals. Um, here's the abstract. The uniquely human emotion of disgust is intimately connected to morality in many, perhaps all, cultures. We report two studies suggesting that a predisposition to feel disgust, parentheses, quotes, disgust sensitivity, is associated with more conservative political attitudes, especially for issues related to the moral dimension of purity. In the first study, we document a positive correlation between disgust sensitivity and self-reported conservatism and a broad sample of U.S. adults. In study two, we show that while disgust sensitivity is associated with more conservative attitudes on a range of political issues, this relationship is strongest for purity-related issues, specifically abortion and gay marriage. Okay, so yeah, that's the that's the abstract. Julia, what is wrong with that abstract? Uh, so my first question would be, so you write that the unique human emotion of disgust is intimately connected to morality. What does it mean if variables are intimately connected? Yeah, boy, that's... Uh, that's our love of narrative, and also that it allows you to write around some ambiguities, right? So Haidt um, and Rosin had this early work showing that often when you tell people about a moral violation, they'll say, I think that's disgusting. And they furthermore argued that when people encounter certain kinds of moral violations, that they actually literally feel a pang of physical disgust. So when you think about some of these transgressions, at least, you're literally physically disgusted. Uh, so that's what we mean by that. Okay, I, I would let that pass because it's a complex relationship you're trying <laughs> to describe here. So um, when I read the abstract and also the study, um, so the impression I got is, so you report an association and so on. And then suddenly it seems to be important that in study two, you show that disgust sensitivity is associated with more conservative attitudes on a range of political issues, strongest for purity-related issues. Right? It's already... Mm -hmm. Okay, so you're not just trying to get a correlation because this seems important for the story you're trying to tell. And so my reading of this paper would be, so, and, and actually you're, tr you're trying really hard to stay on that descriptive side. <laughs> so I'd say you do a fairly good job at that. Um, but then it's kind of like with the methods, okay, we need to control for gender here. So you're obviously starting to think about confounders a bit, right? Like gender is an obvious confounder, so you need to take that in. Yep. And so that already says, okay, you're not just interested in the correlation. It goes beyond that, the, the story you're trying to tell. And then um, towards the end, I, I, I found it got a bit funny in the discussion. Because if you have a full page arguing um, that there might be other variables that account for the observed relationship. And like accounting for something is one of my like favorite psychology Weasley words. Because it can either refer to mediation or confounding. And it's kind of like super ambiguous about that. And so I think what you're trying to say is, oh, could this alternatively be explained by sensation-seeking or openness to experience or some other constructs? And I think your idea here is that these would be confounders of the association. Is that correct? And so you provide some argument why they can't be, and I don't know whether those arguments are sound. I kind of want to, in one study, you seem to have assessed one of the confounders, but you did not control for it. You just describe how it correlates. I, I guess the effect disappeared when you controlled for it. 
I don't actually know which one that is. Yeah, they had the fear of you had the fear of death. Oh no, that two. wasn't us. That was it. That was other research. Also, oh, study two is not your study two. It's the study tour of Heidegger. Okay, because I was really wondering what you were <laughs> doing there. Yeah, basically, like we're we're trying to argue using their statistics okay. that this isn't uh, a, a confound so, that can explain the relationship. Exactly. So you're really trying hard to rule out confounders, and then you try to rule out reverse causality. But of course, reverse causality already implies that you're thinking of one direction, right? And I think you are trying to say that disgust sensitivity causes conservative attitudes. And you're actually bringing forth a lot of arguments for that. But then, um, like the last pages, does disgust sensitivity cause conservatism? The current data cannot speak to the causal relationship between political attitudes and disgust sensitivity. And I think that's so psychology. Like you just spend all that time arguing about why this should be causal because we can't explain it away. And, so, and then you're just like, the current, the current data cannot speak to that, right? And um, so I think in, in your study, I do feel it's like fairly benign, actually. Um, like, I mean, the mismatch is just so obvious, like all of the time you're trying to tell the cause story and then you have that mismatch. But, uh, so yeah, and I think that's just typical. And I mean, of course, there's reasons why people write papers like that, right? Like, mm -hmm. I assume, like, I mean, you're obviously not stupid and you know which story you want to tell, but then you know you're not allowed to tell that story. So you need to say, oh, this, this study cannot show any causal relationship here. The last paragraph also stood out to me, um, just like right after reading your your blog po post, um, because it's such a great example of that sort of like how um, how we want to tell these causal stories, and we know the sort of like conventions for not being punished for overclaiming. So like um, yeah, after the sentence that you read, the current data cannot speak to the causal relationship between political attitudes and disgust sensitivity. Um, the next sentence says, it might be that no simple relationship is there to be found, though it does seem unlikely that political attitudes would shift a person's general emotional dispositions, particularly when it comes to disgust, a basic emotion that emerges long before individuals form political attitudes. Um, so there's this kind of like, yeah, it might not be causal, but like, is the alternative really that plausible? I mean, we're not saying that it's causal, which like, I mean, this is an easy position for me to be in because I, um, if we were looking at a paper of mine from 2008, it would be exactly the same. Um, but yeah, it's like, a, it's a, I think you use the phrase, uh, having our fruitcake and eating it too. And the, um, yeah, it's like such a great example of that. Yeah. I don't even think like it's, it's nothing is like. I mean, I constantly read studies like that, right? And so it's not like an individual failure or anything. It's really just like we are setting up the whole system and the review process to produce exactly this type of research. And I actually don't think that anybody is winning from that. So I think it's good to remind people that correlation does not imply causation. But in my ideal world, they would look a bit different. It would more be like we are interested in this causal effect. Here are our data. Under these assumptions... We can, under these assumptions, we can estimate the causal effect. And then you can always like discuss, are these assumptions plausible or not? Here you seem to be convinced that they are plausible. I don't know whether you're still convinced that they are plausible, but I think it would be more compelling because it would also give readers something, you know, like here are the assumptions. So do you agree with that or do you disagree? And then you can assess it, um, I, I think, in a more reliable manner without having to figure out yourself what you're trying to say here or not. So actually, I would be interested. Do you think the study um, aged well? So I 
did like just a quick Google Scholar search and research on this topic, but I would like to know like well, what happened next. Yeah, uh, so I think it holds up better than we had a right to expect, given the status quo of you know 2008. Um, and so. I would say, in general, these things that we're worried about being confounders didn't turn out to be particularly important, like there was later work that measured a bunch of this stuff and controlled for it. Um, as far as, you know, quote-unquote reverse causality, is it possible that being more conservative makes somebody more disgust-sensitive? You know, the study that would settle that, I think, is very difficult. Um we do have stuff on like kind of low level precursors of disgust sensitivity, like how the density of taste buds on your tongue or how much are you able to taste bitter strips and stuff like that. Um, so it, it, and that like relates to people's political beliefs. So I, I think, you know, it's still kind of an assumption, I guess. And I think it would be nice to be explicit about this, that the disgust sensitivity comes first. I do think that that's true. Um, the stuff that's held up not very well is the stuff about purity, but that's more of a, on a theoretical level where just I would talk about those kind of um, attitudes differently now. Um, so, it's, it, yeah, it's it, it's not so much that, you know, the, uh, I guess talking about like there's a difference between the scale response and what is the underlying thing that it maps to, right? Like I would still expect that the people who are more um, anti- gay marriage or anti-abortion are going to be more disgust sensitive um, and sort of across countries. But yeah, I wouldn't talk about it necessarily as being purity exactly. I would talk about it somewhat differently. What What's the like mechanism for, or or why would disgust sensitivity be related to conservatism if it's not because of purity values? Yeah, so it's a little bit of a long story, but we have a, uh, a paper with Josh Tiber um, where we find pretty good evidence that um, it it's really about values around sexuality and and um, traditional um, like so, social traditionalism and that um, those traditional sexual values um, and social traditionalism very plausibly reduce people's pathogen exposure and so if you think of disgust sensitivity the measure as just a measure of people's um, how worried are you about pathogens, the people who are more disgust sensitive who just have that dial set a little higher, more pathogen worried. But what about like with a different issue where liberals seem more worried about pathogens like COVID? Yeah. So it, the relationships are always small um, and they can obviously get overwhelmed by kind of local politics, right? So yeah, like this stuff absolutely would have predicted that... Uh, conservatives more so than liberals um you know trump was a famous germaphobe right would have more would have been more covid worried but yeah then when you're talking about predicting any like specific real world behavior then you have a lot of other stuff going on um like so that trump happened to want to minimize the threat of covid early on um that conservatives at least in the U.S. Um, also are skeptical of authority, including scientific authorities, right? Mm -hmm. So all those things come into play as well. Um, so yeah, Josh actually has a nice piece about how this uh, theory of like how these kind of like basic sensitivities to pathogens affect like higher level social behaviors. Um, it's been called behavioral immune system. He has a nice paper about how this stuff um, predicts or doesn't predict well COVID-related things and I think you you have to clearly like score it as sort of a, a 
an L for the behavioral immune system theory, which would have predicted something pretty different. But I, I think it's a it's a useful example of like how these relationships, none of them are that big, right? So we're talking about correlations in the 0.2 to 0.3 range. And so that's where a range where it's obviously one of many influences on people's eventual attitudes. Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. We are on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. Uh, so you can at mention us or DM it. That'll go to me or Mickey. Uh, if you'd like to email us, fourbeerspod at gmail.com will go to all three of us. Uh, finally, our website is fourbeers.com where you can find any of our episodes. You can also drop us a line there if you like. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, uh, please uh, take a sec to rate and review us on the podcast platform of your choice. Just helps other people find us. Alexa, you've promised me you were going to start drinking. Are you going to back out now? I am drinking uh, Slap Fight India Pale Ale um, from Monday Night Brewing, which is sent- it's stationed in Atlanta, but there's um, there's one in Birmingham now, too. I love that name. And that's also a very cool looking can. Yeah. Yeah. Lots of ties with slapping uh, comic images on it. Excellent. Uh, Julia, are you switching it up or are you staying with the same thing? I'm I'm barely halfway through, so I'm going to stay with this <laughs> <Excellent>. one. <laughs> I've been taking it slow, too. So I'm I'm still drinking the same beer that I was at the top of the show. Um, so. Uh, before the break, uh, we were talking about uh, my first paper and uh, some of the things that now you might write differently if you wanted to be more explicit about the causal assumptions that you were making. Uh, and I wonder, Julia, whether we can like do an attempt at rephrasing this abstract in a way that makes those things more explicit like what would this look like if we were writing it the way that you think abstracts and psychology ought to be written so i i guess first you would have to be willing to commit to the causal association right and it's really a question whether you would have been willing to do that at that point or whether you were like so generally uncertain that you'd rather say we're really just interested in the correlation. But then I guess you would have to put all the like <laughs> arguments about how this is actually causal. Like they would need to be like clearly distinct in the very end, right? Because your study does not afford the conclusions unless you explicitly try to make them. And so I think if you were willing to do that, then your study would be interested in the causal effects of disgust sensitivity on political um, 
attitudes on a range of political issues. And actually, so you you highlight, right, how it's in particular for purity-related issues. And I kind of assume that is some some sort of like, I don't know, is it like a mechanistic claim? Yeah, it is a mechanistic claim, right? I think so. Yeah, so the... Um, the disgust sensitivity makes you more conservative on the purity-related issues, and that makes you more conservative in general if you just ask for a general political attitude. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So there would yeah. actually be like even a mediation claim in there, and I don't know whether you would want to explicitly estimate that mediated effect or not. I guess it would be a bit much for like one study because mediation is like really hard. But yeah, you would be interested in the causal effect here, and then um, the second um, part I'm suggesting is that you have an identification strategy. Right. And um, given what you actually do, that identification strategy would essentially be there are no confounding factors between disgust sensitivity and political attitudes except for gender. And there is no reverse causality. So wait, when you say identification strategy, do you mean um, that you have to list the assumptions that you are making for your data to inform the specific question that you have? So in general, identification strategy, I think it's mainly used in the um, context of causal inference. And that is like the, the causal web or the causal assumptions that go in there. And um, so um, I think the what's your estimate paper does it a bit more broadly. It's like everything that you need to link your theoretical estimate to the statistical thing you estimate. And so um, if you had like measurement assumptions and so on involved in here, they would also be part of the identification strategy here. And um, of course, you would say, okay, those assumptions, I mean, they are actually assumptions that you're trying to defend within the paper. But if you spell them out that explicitly, maybe they would look a bit ridiculous. So, and I, my hope would be that if people start spelling out um, both mm -hmm. their theoretical estimates, which forces them to be more just clear about what they want to do, but also their identification strategies, they would often notice that those aren't actually great and maybe start looking around for better things. And so that's what I'm uh -huh. wondering about the disgust sensitivity literature. Like, have there been more causally informative studies or uh, more explicit attempts or maybe even instrumental variable approaches? There isn't anything that I'm aware of. Um, I reviewed this literature pretty recently um, for a, a paper that David and I wrote. So I think if that existed, I would know about it. I mean, I can't obviously be 100% confident that I got everything, but I, I think I would have gotten something like that. So there's no instrumental variable studies that I know of. Um, there are studies in which people try to control for more stuff, right? And that could be in like just a regular regression framework. It could be in SEM or something like that. Um, there's studies like one of which I mentioned before the break where you try to look at something where it's really implausible that uh, politics would affect it, like how many taste buds you have on your tongue or how uh, sensitive you are to bitter tastes. Uh, but that's still like kind of a plausibility argument, right? Um, but there's there's nothing using kind of more sophisticated, I guess, econometrics types approaches that I know of. So let's say that you, Julia, are a queen of this field and you get to decree what studies are done. Mm -hmm. what, what would you decree? So first of all, one thing that I always find kind of fun is um, essentially um, twin control designs. So get a sam sample of monozygotic twins and they are essentially matched on a lot of things among them. 
their genetics, but also some socioeconomic status and upbringing and so on. And then just look whether the more discussed sensitive twin is the one who's more politically conservative. And so that doesn't rule out all alternatives that could still be like, I'm um, still confounding, of course, like within the twins, and they can still be reverse causality. But um, I do think it's like a super neat, like natural experiment that rules out a lot of confounders. And um, I know that um, Paige Harden has um, done such studies, for example, for religiosity and criminal activities. And um, I think it turned out that the uh, more religious twin is not less criminal. So that kind of speaks against the direct cause effect here, but more something about the shared environment or um, about the families that um, causes the link we observe. So I think this is one like fun thing, and I think it's really underused as a design because there are these big twin studies and they include all sorts of things. And so it's just like, it's, it's just nice to see that the association exists within twins. So um, I think that would be fun. And then I have I, a question did, about that study. Yes, of course. Okay, so... Um, when I think of the, uh, like, I guess the standard um, narrative that links disgust sensitivity to political attitudes, um, I think of disgust as being something that's seen as pretty genetic. And Yoel, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like that part of the narrative is like disgust is evolved and it's like evolves to do these certain things. And this evolved emotion has been co-opted to um, allow us to respond to moral things in this way or whatever. And so I guess... What I'm imagining is like that causal narrative sort of suggests that the environment is uh, not having a big influence on your disgust sensitivity. But if you make room for that, so like in a case of monozygotic, wait, you said monozygotic twins? Yes. I mean, you could also do sibling control design if you want to have some genetic right. differences in there. Right. And just looking but at siblings is helpful. If you If you did do monozygotic twins, wouldn't that mean that so disgust sensitivity must be arising from some kind of like environmental effect, but couldn't that environmental effect then also be influencing political views or some precursors to political views? And doesn't that then cloud the question of whether disgust is, is happening before political attitudes? But they could they could obviously still be confounders, right? And um, even the reverse causality, if one twin decides to be um, like hang out with more conservative people, and that makes um, him or her more disgust sensitive. So you can't rule these out. You can just rule out um, like all confounders that are matched within the sibships. Um, and I think the other point you brought up, and, and that is kind of interesting, because yeah, it does sound like um, in by it, I'll want to imply that it's kind of like the genetic part of disgust sensitivity that causes um, the the effects, but um, it would be kind of weird to argue. So it, it seems like um, the heritability of disgust sensitivity is like, I don't know, 50%. This is like not very surprising. Yeah, so, um, yeah that's right. But if, if two monozygotic twins ended up with different disgust sensitivities um, due to environmental effects or just like epigenetics, would you still assume that these differences can still affect their political attitudes or would you say, no, no, it can only be the genetics that do this? No, no. We think of it as the you know felt experience of disgust sensitivity that's leading to the um, political differences. Okay, so I, I think um, then a twin design would be um, just informative, you know, just as like a, a sanity check. And then I was starting to think about whether there are plausible instruments. And one thing I came um, up with, and that is maybe just because it's very um, salient to me right now. So there's research that like um, disgust sensitivity has like a particular um, trajectory during pregnancy. 
it's like higher during the first part of pregnancy, but then it gets lower. And so I think if somebody showed me that um, in pregnant women, their, their conservative attitudes towards these issues tracks this trajectory of disgust, it's like higher in the beginning and then it kind of levels off again. I, I would find that kind of compelling because I cannot figure out, I guess it depends on your like political attitudes items, but I wouldn't see why your pregnancy in the beginning in particular would affect your political attitudes, but then not later on when the birth is closer and so on. So I think that would be like, for me, that would be compelling because I do feel like the um, the the variability induced in um, disgust sensitivity during pregnancy is kind of like, it's not essentially random, but if you compare it like within person, it is kind of like random or it doesn't track any other systematic changes that much. Yeah, that's interesting. There is one paper that I know of where they, this isn't exactly about political ideology, but it, they looked at attitudes towards immigrants, I think, um, in women uh, in their, I, this has been a while since I read this paper, but in the design basically that you suggest um, over the course of their pregnancy. And they found that those attitudes fluctuated as you would expect with this elevated period of disgust sensitivity. Um, that study is kind of old and from what I think of as like the bad era yeah, of social yeah, psychology. Yeah. So like, <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I, I, I'm not sure without looking back at it, how reliable I think the stats are, but certainly from a design perspective, that seems basically what you were suggesting. Yeah, and I mean, it's often the case, right? Like those studies with the really cool designs. And I think that also holds for economics and so on. And you look at them and they are like not very convincing because they still have like the sample size concerns, like how many pregnant women do you get to fill out your political attitudes question? So and so there's always these um, trade-offs and so on. I'm interested from the design perspective, that would be kind of neat. And I see it has been tried, but maybe not in an optimal manner, which is kind of sad because then if you do it, it's no longer novel. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, so I think that, well, one thing that's jumping out at me here is how much this really is about kind of the norms of what we expect. So all of these problems with drawing the causal conclusion that we want to draw, they are inherent in the paper. We do talk about them. We just don't talk about them in a way that's as blunt as what you suggest, right? And somehow it seems that given what we're used to reading, if you're that blunt about, well, we have to make this laundry list of assumptions in order for this uh, measured relationship to correspond to the causal effect we think it does, well, then you're like, oh, no, that's that, you know, that's ridiculous. But it's like, well, that is what we're doing. We're just not being explicit about it, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am curious. So, so Yulia, you say that you sort of hope that as people start to list all of the assumptions that they would have to make um, uh, in order to, I guess, like uh, to to make sure that they're they can make claims about the theoretical estimate. I'm not sure if I'm wording this correctly, but um, all of the assumptions that they would have to make um, that you think that people would start to realize, okay, well, maybe these actually aren't very tenable assumptions. Um, and then as a consequence, make different decisions. And I'm curious, what do you envision as those different decisions? So do you envision that people sort of like maintain these like lofty 
um, lofty estimates and design more rigorous studies? Or do you imagine that people are, um, yeah, like constraining their estimates more? That, that part is really interesting to me because, um, because I sort of worry that, that the kinds of research questions that we find really interesting, like for instance, I'm much more interested in the research question, like does disgust sensitivity cause political orientation than I am like a correlation between those two things. Um, so sometimes I feel like that the questions that we find interesting are, it's just like very difficult to run the study that would appropriately test them. And I think that people are also, they seem very unwilling to make those kinds of sacrifices where, where they say, okay, we're not going to, we're not going to ask these crazy interesting questions because they're too hard to answer. So instead we'll ask this like much more boring question. So I think both things might happen, right? I mean, there are already people like, I think Talia Coney is one of them, like pushing for, we can't make these types of claims. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's look at prediction. That is something that can be reasonably achieved and so on. Um, yeah. So at the same time, so I think it's important. So what I suggest that you list all the assumptions and so on. I mean, if reviewers start to penalize you for doing this, that would be really dysfunctional, right? If reviewers are, this is like super implausible, mm -hmm. all these assumptions, so we won't publish this. And this is when I'm a reviewer, and I just like tweeted that at, at somebody. When I'm a reviewer and I tell them, please list the assumptions underlying your mediation analysis, and they won't do it. They just won't do it because I think they are afraid that if they, I mean, maybe they don't know the assumption, but I link our paper explaining the assumption so they can't be the explanation here. <laughs> I think they're really just afraid that if they spell it out, they will get rejected. And I think that's a reasonable fear because um, like your reviewers are not that alert that they would spot the issues themselves. Um, but if you spell them out for them, you just give them material mm -hmm. to reject your paper. And so I'm very much in favor of having like some sort of grace period. You know, because when I'm reviewing papers, I'm like, please just list all of, just make, make clear what you want to do and list all of your assumptions. And I actually don't care if they are ridiculous. If you spell mm -hmm. them out and they are right there in the paper, then I think it's okay if you publish the paper, even if the claims are ridiculous because your assumptions are ridiculous. I don't mind. It's better than if you try to hide what you're doing and then get mm -hmm. it published elsewhere. And so I think that's like a very important, at least intermediate step until we like establish some awareness of these issues and so on. And then, yeah, I do think it's an open question. So there's that fear, um, what people have um, observed in economics, that the questions kind of narrow down to things that you can tackle with an instrument and so on. And then kind of the instrument determines which um, questions you try to answer. And it would, of course, be sad if you have such a narrowing uh, then again, I think so. I, I believe that some questions aren't tractable in psychology. And I do think we should yeah. let go of these. Um, but of course, there will be disagreement. And maybe that's like a good strategy to have like, you know, mixed strategies. Like some people try to get at these lofty estimates. Mm -hmm. Others are more like down to earth and trying to work on more tractable problems. And so on. I think like just have like a pool of different strategies would be probably best for science as a whole. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To clarify, like, I don't I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing for um, people to ask much more circumscribed research questions. I think that would be great, actually. Um, but I see a lot of resistance to that idea. Um, and I, I probably have a lot of resistance to that idea, too, that I may be like not acknowledging. Um, like, I think once you start to see it in practice, um, then you might say, like, OK, well, if that's the kind of question that I'm allowed to ask, maybe I won't bother. Um, but theoretically, I think that that's the direction we should go in. Um, and we should find these more sort of tractable questions that are still worth 
worth asking. Is that the reason why social psychologists think that personality psychology is boring? Yeah, <laughs> because I think, I think for, so. for personality psychologists, hey, it's perfectly fine to have like one tractable question per paper. I mean, this, all these papers just estimating the age trajectories of personality and it's actually already hugely complicated. It's just fine, but it's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that, that in itself is a fascinating question to me because I do think there are really... Um, really big differences in sort of what's perceived as like an interesting question and a novel contribution between personality and social. And yeah, I don't know exactly why that is the case. I mean, I think that personality is fascinating and my um, personal experience talking about it is that like lay people are super interested in personality. They love talking about personality scales and all of this kinds of stuff. Um, I wish they talked about the big five more than they talked about the Enneagram, but you know, um, <laughs> baby steps. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think there are really different norms and in, yeah, social psychology, it seems like that the expectations for sort of, um, what counts as an interesting question are different. Yeah. And it's, it's easier to, uh, study interesting questions if you're more relaxed about your methodology, like it, the study that, you know, purports to answer some big exciting question but if you list all the assumptions seems kind of silly um that study is going to have an easier time getting through the review process in a field where you don't habitually list all the assumptions right and then so then over time the people in that field are going to expect that level of excitingness um when it's sort of out of proportion to like what you could actually reasonably expect in a field that's methodologically more uh demanding and I think that's something that is biting early career researchers like hard because there are all these like amazing papers with like thousands of citations, like doing things on 100 Cornell undergraduates and the claims are just ridiculous. But this is like what you're being compared to. And this is like the reason why everybody says your research is kind of like boring. And so, yeah, yeah I'm not I'm not blaming you, you were. I, but I did know. I that just feel like a little was, personally attacked with the Cornell undergraduates. So I, I, I did like <laughs> that. Like in the first study, you use a broad sample of U.S. adults, and like study two, you just show something else, but you never mention the sample. I mean, it's like yeah, it's it's, it's undergrads. Yep. Yep, yeah, yeah, absolutely. it's just like strategic communication, right? Yeah, when you when when it's something to boast about, you boast about it, and when it's not, you just uh, you know. So one last thing that I wanted to cover before before we let you go, um, you know, you've you've also written quite a bit about kind of causal inference broadly, and um, you've sort of casually been talking about identification strategy. Um, and I wonder for the people who just like are not that familiar with the terminology here and maybe the kind of theoretical frameworks about around causal inference, can you take a minute to just explain what that perspective is? Okay, so um, first of all, there are different um, frameworks to formalize causal inference. There's like the potential outcomes model, and then there's like the, the graphical approach, like directed acyclic graphs by Pearl um, and and so on. And so when you, when you just look at how these people communicate with each other, you could think that there's like huge disagreement. Um, but you can essentially prove that these things are equivalent and some are just easier <laughs> to grasp than others. Um, and so I like the directed acyclic graph approach because it's graphical and easy to understand. I think economists might dislike it because it's easy to grasp. So there's different preferences here. Um, but the, the basic idea is um, in directed acyclic graphs, so um, 
you can think of it as non-parametric structural equation modeling. And so these are these nice graphs where you just have your variables and you point, like you draw arrows between them. And essentially you're drawing out the um, assumed underlying causal net. So that's your DAG. And so you can add variables and so on. And um, then you can look at these variables and choose one. So this is your exposure or your independent variable of interest and another one that's your outcome of interest. And then you can use this whole DAG and assuming that it um, represents the true data generating process, you can actually just use that to derive which variables need to be controlled for, but also which variables you shouldn't um, control for or condition on and so on in your analysis to identify the causal effect of interest. And so an identification strategy here would be, for example, a complete set of control variables that if you adjust for them appropriately, will ensure that you get at the causal effect of interest. And that is always depending on your um, the net you drew being correct. And um, so you can actually use these DAGs to um, depict all sorts of situations, like also instrumental variables, but also experiments and so on. That kind of affects um, how you draw that um, little DAG. But I think the really the strength is, so you everybody has an intuition what a confounder is and so on. But for example, there can be situations in which there's tons of confounders but they are interrelated in a particular way that you actually only need to worry about four of them. And if you take these into account, you can actually even block for confounding influences of unobservable factors and so on. And so um, the nice thing about these decks is they give you like a just a principled way to reason about these things and also to identify variables that you should not control for because controlling for them will introduce bias. So that um, like kind of common approach where you just throw in a ton of controls and then be like, we controlled for all these things and then uh, the effect was still there or disappeared or whatever. That also, unfortunately, it doesn't work. So um, sometimes you include um, control variables and they make things work worse. And a DAG is just a way to figure out under which conditions something like that would happen. Can you give us a concrete example of where controlling for something actually introduces bias? So <laughs> I have a couple of them. So um, do you want the um, do you want the race and police stops thing? Yes, let's do the controversial. One. <laughs> let's do the controversial. Yeah, I mean the gender gender pay gap would also work. But um, so essentially, there was a paper by Joe Cesario um, in. Um, BBS. I always forget what BBS stands for. Behavior and Brain Sciences. Behavior and Brain Sciences. <laughs> Excellent. You both know. So it must be important. And so essentially he's just arguing about lab experiments on decision-maker bias and um, the sort of issues they have. Actually, I think he makes a, f a few good points. But then he goes on talking about um, racial disparities in police shootings. And then he says, and actually it seems like differences in violent crime rates can account for that. So first of all, we got that word again. They can account for them. And here it's obviously not meant as a confounder, but as a mediating effect. So the narrative he's trying to um, support with, with observational data here is that black people are more involved in violent crime situations and thus get shot more frequently. And so um, actually there's a huge literature on that also involving um, political scientists and so on. Because you can't simply adjust for crime rate in that manner, because it will introduce so-called collider bias. And so um, maybe it's easier to think about it if you um, think on just like an individual case basis. So um, let's say you look at um, only police interactions. And so race will likely affect whether you will get involved with the police. So that might already be like some sort of um, decision maker bias and who gets stopped and so on. 
It could also be just something like certain areas that are poorer getting policed more frequently and so on, which of course will introduce bias, though you could say it's not directly bias and so on. And on top of that, there will be additional factors that affect whether you get um, stopped by the police. For example, you could just behave super suspiciously. You could be carrying around a, a bloody chainsaw or whatever, and that would probably make the police stop you. So and even if these two variables um, just have like additive effects on the outcome of being stopped by the police, if you condition on being stopped by the police, you will introduce a correlation. And actually, that's kind of I think it's kind of intuitive. So it would essentially mean that if you look at people who got stopped by the police, the black people will be more harmless because um, they probably only got stopped because of their race, while the white people who got stopped probably got stopped because they did something that just looks super sketchy. And so you will already have um, a difference between the populations once you condition on being stopped by the police. And now, if you just observe that in these situations, black people um, are equally likely to get shot like white people, that doesn't tell you that there's no bias, because maybe the white guy was wielding a chainsaw, while the black guy was just buying groceries. And so conditioning on police stop introduced an association and that biases all effects. I guess, so I think I follow all of that, Julia, after like reading over it several times and then also listening to you explain it just now. Um, but I'm not sure, like I would know. So I read, maybe not the BBS paper, but a different paper that Joe Cesario had written on this topic before. Um, and this like problem did not jump out at me. Uh, and so I'm wondering like, how do, I, how do I make these problems jump out at me? How am I like, oh, I should be suspicious of this, um, of this analysis because uh, it could have this problem that Yulia mentioned. I, so whenever somebody conditions on a variable, which is affected by the thing you're interested in, that kind of like screams collider bias, right? Like, oh, let's condition on, I don't know, you could also like condition on income. It would be white income is already probably affected by race, right? So you can't just condition on it because it will create inequalities between the groups and so on. So, I mean, there is that heuristic and I think it's a valid heuristic to never adjust for um, post-treatment variables. So nothing that is affected by the treatment ought to be controlled for. And I think it's a it's a solid um, heuristic in these cases. And I guess the, the other heuristic I would suggest is that whenever somebody talks about mediation, I I would just be <laughs> quite skeptic. Just I, reject I'm, it. No, no, I wouldn't desk reject it, but there's very few empirical mediation analyses I find convincing. Even like there, mm -hmm. there are mediation claims that I do consider um, convincing and convincing causes studies, but that doesn't mean that I would consider the mediation analysis in itself uh, reliable. Mm -hmm. So let's say, you know, you have this um, argument against simply conditioning on, I think the Cesario analysis did it based on some geographic unit, right? It's was the stop in a higher crime or a lower crime area, something like that. So like, let's say you're convinced, okay, you can't do that. It's um, that may introduce bias. So what's the right way to do that analysis? Because it seems like not conditioning at all has other problems, right? So depending on your assumptions, mm -hmm. one approach could be more problematic than the other. And you, you don't know what state of the world you're actually in. Uh, yes. 
Yes. So um, one thing I do still think it's interesting to look at the unconditional um, association. Um, and I would actually hold the same for um, the, the gender pay gap, which has a similar structural um, problem that if you condition on the jobs that people actually hold, but which jobs they get will already be affected um, by their gender and so on, then you get like confusing observations that women who are on a board of directors earn more than men who do. But then it's like, wait a second, who are the women who get on the board of directors? Because it is like very ambitious and it is not something that the average woman does and so on. So I, I still would hold that the unadjusted um, metric here is telling us something. It's not telling us the exact pathway how um, something happens, but it's telling us that there is something happening. Then I think for the actual uh, modeling, so actually... I don't know whether that is confidential, but um, Joe Cesare reached out to me after the commentary and was wondering whether I was willing to collaborate with him. And I, I generally believe that he does want to get at the right answer. And I was actually like, I'm mm -hmm. I'm not equipped to tackle that. Um, so I know that there's this huge literature in the political sciences and a lot of people debating this and how to define the counterfactualism and so on. And this is like actually super technical. It's too technical for me. Um, I do think it does involve like having more data um, running a lot of like robustness checks, like testing different sets of assumptions and so on. And so it's actually beyond um, beyond my knowledge of that field of research to fix that. I just say it's a lot more complicated than just adjusting for a variable and then getting the causal story right. And I guess that's like the depressing part about the causal inference stuff is that you just always discover that it's way more complicated than you thought it would be. Right. So this is you know, um, related to something that you said earlier, introducing, you know, uh, a DAG is conditional on your causal model of the world is correct. You can do this other stuff, right? And so, you know, this came up with the with the gender pig app. Like you said, uh, we emailed a bit uh, with uh, Paul Hunermund, I think his name is. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it, it seemed to me that so much of this is about various assumptions that are really hard to test. And then you're almost back to your ideological priors, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're like, it feels really plausible to me that people discriminate against women and pay, mm -hmm. then you're like, well, you know, therefore this associated causal model seems more plausible. And if you're like, it doesn't seem plausible, then you're like, well, this associated causal model seems less plausible. And so then then you're back in a space of like where you're just, you know, you're you're at your priors again. So mm -hmm. then how do you how do you adjudicate between those different different causal models. I, I don't think that's a bug. I think it's a feature, right? Because it does create that transparency. You need to spell out the underlying causal web. And actually, I think it would be awesome if we were capable of, if we have an academic disagreement and we are able to pin it down on a difference in the mental, mental deck that people have. I think that would already be amazing, right? Like that one mm -hmm. group of people says this is a mediator here. This other group of people says it's a confounder. And you can actually pin it down. And so I I would say that would be a huge win if we got to that point, even if it does mean, okay, the people will group depending on their prior beliefs or what the answer has to be. You could link that. Um, like, I think it needs to be this and this way. And that means I have to assume that reality works like this as opposed to like that. And then you would have, like, I think a consistency in, like, um, arguments, in academic arguments, that psychology seems to be currently lacking. Yeah, absolutely. I, I would say that it's it's pretty rare, even in, you know, a field like psychology where it's supposed to be that these um, these discussions are decided based on data uh, that you can actually sort of resolve an argument by 
um, I guess, really clearly stating your assumptions and, and identifying like where your assumptions differ or where one person's assumptions are better supported than another. Like, basically, I'm saying, even in psychology, where we're supposed to be constrained by data, I feel like a lot of arguments, people are just talking past each other. So, Julia, uh, we've kept you for a while. Um, and I know that we promised you that we would keep it under two hours. So anything that uh, we didn't ask you that we ought to have? So you did have like a nice question in there, like what makes you hopeful about the future of psychology? Yeah, Julia, uh, I'd like to know sort of what makes you either hopeful about the future of psychology or depressed about the future of psychology? Um, so <laughs> should we start with the hopeful stuff or the depressing stuff? So I want you to choose because I feel like um, I feel like I'm learning things about your personality from this interview and I have a guess about which oh, okay. one will choose. So I will start with the things that make me depressed. Um, so one thing I'm seeing also coming out of the, like, the open science and psychological reform movement is People will come up with like new rules and practices that make sense and practical, and then they will just like blindly apply to everything, right? It's like we need pre-registration for everything, and we need to focus on the sample size at the expense of everything else, and so on. And I think that partly also um, that overgeneralization explain, uh, like explains some of the pushback against open science. And I'm genuinely conflicted on that. So, and um, maybe you remember that like. Uh, 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 redefining statistical significance versus justify your alpha um, mm -hmm. debate. So there was like one paper recommending that we should change the um, threshold for statistical significance to 0.005, which would mean that you just need stronger statistical evidence to claim an effect. And then there was a response oh, that doesn't make any sense as a blanket rule and it needs to be justify your alpha. And so I believe that just changing an arbitrary rule like the significance threshold could on average have the better effect on the research that is conducted in our field. And I kind of really, really wish we lived in a world where the second approach, like you justify what you do, would work better. And I actually run into that with causal inference as well, because there are people that are like very apt at causal inference and they're like, no, 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 it's good if we just tell psychologists correlation does not imply causation. We don't want to give them the wrong ideas because if we tell them about causal inference in more detail, they will abuse that. And I think there's a real um, risk to that. So I'm optimistic mm -hmm. that people are capable of learning these things. I'm also a bit sometimes depressed how quickly people will overgeneralize and just take away um, whatever they want to take away. So I'm getting cited by... Um, people in certain uh, arguments that I actually do not support at all, but they will be like, oh, Rora wrote about uh, statistical over-control, and here this is over-control if you control for this. Like, no, that's like bullshit. I, I never said this, but... Um, yeah, so that is the part that makes me depressed. But the part that gives me kind of hope is just to see how many things have changed. So I started studying psychology in 2011, when all that replication mm. crisis stuff just started. And I do think practices have changed quite a bit and even like in ways that people wouldn't have imagined. So, for example, um, Joel, your 2008 paper, that wouldn't be impressive nowadays. People would be like, yeah, it's kind of like the sample sizes and it's kind of weak and so on. And these, these practices have changed. And so there's a story from my um, PhD advisor, like Stefan Schmuckler, my current boss. 
So when he submitted his very first paper a long time ago, he's 20 years older than I am, he asked his advisor, so uh, how do I send the data? Like, do I copy it on a floppy disk and send it with a physical copy of the manuscript? So these were different times. Because he didn't understand how reviewers could possibly assess his manuscript without the data. Right? And it was laughable at the time, right? Like copying your data on a floppy disk and sending it to the journal and so on. And I think... It took some time, but it's no longer laughable, that notion that the reviewers should have the data and so on. And so I do think that is like massive cultural change within, I don't know how many years, but it does show that there's like plasticity in the system. And so that makes me kind of hopeful that we actually can change practices in such a manner. You know, the the story that you told about being miscited, uh, it's funny, it reminds me of, um, I think, Joe Simmons, uh, one of the co-authors on False Positive Psychology, the, the psych science paper. Mm. I don't know if you mentioned this while I was on the show, but they went back and looked at, you know, that paper's been like very, very widely cited. They looked back and w- looked at what is it cited for. Mm-hmm. And many of those citations are, they in that paper said minimum of N of 20 per cell. 20 recommended people, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. And so lots and lots of people are saying, as recommended by Simmons et al., <laughs> we did 20 per cell. Oh. That's the worst. Yeah. I mean, that actually like is, I mean, so consistent with your first concern, right? This sort of like thoughtless application of rules slash maybe, you know, um, Simmons at all making a bad rule, which I think they've acknowledged many, many times. Yeah, now now they're sorry. <laughs> but yeah, it's like, you know, I don't know if it's thoughtless or opportunistic or some combination of the two. Mm-hmm. Well, Juliet, thanks so much for coming on. Um, this has been super informative and I think our listeners will love it. Uh, so like I said, uh, you can find more of Julia's writing at the100.ci. We'll put a link to that blog on the show notes. Uh, she's on Twitter. Julia, what's your Twitter ID? <laughs> do you do you know it and just want me to spell it out? It's ding ding underscore ping. <laughs> I actually did not know it, but okay. it's incidentally okay. funny that you had to spell it out. <laughs> yeah. No, I was not setting you up, I promise. <laughs> Anything else you want to plug before we let you go? I think yeah. Follow me we on covered Twitter. It. <laughs> yes. Reach out to like to, um, I would like to briefly express gratitude for your Simpsons memes, um, in your like horse versus ducks blog post. Um, yeah, I felt very with it, very current. Um, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, that's because my memes are so outdated, right? So yeah. everybody, everybody in our generation can. I don't even know whether we are the same generation, but yeah, it's just great that somebody can. Appreciate vintage memes. Yes. Yes, I, I felt spoken to as well by those Simpsons memes. And I was like, wow, she's like, she must be older than I think. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll talk to you guys next time.